following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. How do you feel about people who don't fit into the boxes we, uh, we approve of? And of course, the, the real question and the real, the, the, what we want to talk about this morning is not who we think we are or what image we try to project about ourselves. The most important question is, who does God know that we are? What is our identity before him and in him? Uh, and how does that influence how we want others to see us and how we see others? What is our identity before God who knows who we are? Uh, well, that's kind of what's going on in this passage uh, at, at the beginning of it. And Jesus tells all three of these parables uh, to really deal with some of these issues. Um, just reading in the first verse, notice, the, notice the, the categories, the boxes, right? The identities that are being put forward here. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, there's a label, right? Tax collectors and sinners, the bad people, were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees, who Jesus later calls the righteous people, uh, and the scribes, also the righteous people, are grumbling against Jesus, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Right? That's exactly what's going on here. Uh, they have been cast into boxes, and it's all about who you accept and who you avoid, who you welcome and who you stay away from. And... Uh, story starts off with tax collectors and sinners. These are obviously the bad people, right? These are the bad people. Tax collectors were traitors to Israel. Uh, they were people who took taxes, money from Israelites, and gave it to the Romans. And along the way, most of them kept their own fair share above and beyond what they were supposed to. So not only were they traitors, they were usually crooks and thieves. They had a horrible reputation, and they were despised and hated by the good people of society, right? Uh, sinners uh, could be any, any group of people who are just seen to be making no serious effort at being religious, right? They, they weren't in the, you know, kind of the main stream of Jewish society. And this could be true criminals, bad guys, uh, prostitutes, murderers. But it could also be people who, by their profession, uh, we're continually in a state of, of uncleanness. So, for example, somebody who worked with animal hides was constantly unclean. And so by their very profession, they were labeled as sinners, as people to be uh, avoided and stay away from. Um, but the ironic thing in this story is that who is it that's drawn to Jesus? Well, it's the bad guys, right? It says they are drawn to him. They are coming to Jesus, and they are longing to listen to him and to hear him teach. They want to know who Jesus is and what he has to say. Uh, Jesus has just been telling a series of parables before that that talks about um, God's great banquet, and that God is inviting everybody in. But it's, 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 uh, in, in the parable, of course, it was the first invitees, the Jews, who were refusing to come in. So he sends the servant out to uh, bring in the outcasts, 
uh, and the outsiders. And we see that happening. It's the outcasts and outsiders that Jesus is connecting with, and they are the ones coming into the banquet. They are the ones drawing near to Jesus to listen and to hear him. Um, Sinners who are listening and drawing near to Christ. Um, The other group, of course, is the Pharisees and scribes, the religious people, the pious, the good people, right? Uh, Notice what it says about them. It says they are grumbling and complaining about Jesus. And what are they complaining about? Well, he's hanging out with the wrong kind of people, right? Jesus is supposed to be in the box of the good people, but all he's surrounded by and all of his friends are the bad people. And the scribes and Pharisees don't know what to do with this because it's unraveling the whole system. The whole point of having the box is so you stay in it, right? And Jesus is messing that up. He's hanging out with the wrong kind of people. And so they begin to question his own character and integrity. If he's that kind of guy who hangs out with that kind of people, um, then what does it say about who he is as a person? Um, so they grumble about him. They complain against him. And ironically, we know that in the parables that Jesus has just been giving, it is these righteous people who are refusing Christ, who are refusing to enter into the banquet, who are walking away because they are too busy and too many more important things in their life. They are withdrawing from Christ and becoming more and more uh, critical of him. Uh, And they are becoming skeptical of his reputation. And they don't know what to do with him, so they're grumbling and complaining against him. Um, So Jesus, uh, to answer their question and to try to teach them, he tells three parables. We're going to look at the first two this morning. We read... um, And the first thing that's obvious is that God does not see people in the categories of good people and bad people. That is not the category that God sees. Uh, Again, let me just read the the two parables real quickly. He says, so he told this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin I had lost. How does God see all of humanity? Well, we know from all of Scripture and and all of that Jesus taught that that God sees all humanity with the identity of bad people, right? Now, of course, in this story, Jesus, um, he sticks with the two categories that the guys have set up, right? And he talks about the, the lost and the not lost. And, and later he actually says of the 99 that were not lost, he calls them righteous. Right? But, but Jesus does not mean by that, that that God thinks they're righteous. It just means that they've called themselves righteous. They have qualified by some standards to fit in what's socially acceptable, Right? They have the good identity. But remember, that identity is only a cover, a mask that is hiding the truth inside. In God's book, all humanity are just sinners. All people have wandered away from him. And we know that these very religious leaders who claim to be good are the very ones who are heading at full speed away from Christ because in their hearts they are, re- they are rebels against God. Um, In God's book, there are only sinful people. 
there are really no truly good people. Uh, and in fact, one of the points that Jesus has been trying to make over and over again is that until you realize you're not the 99, you're not the righteous one, until you come to the point of realizing your desperate need for Christ, you cannot be saved. And that's what he's been uh, teaching over and over again. But in this story, he makes a slightly different point. But he accommodates them, right? And he uses this language of the righteous and the not righteous because he's trying to make a, a slightly different point. And the point is this. The point is that if you have 99, if you have 100 sheep, right, and you lose just one of them, uh, no good shepherd would say, oh, you know, I still got 99, not going to worry about the one I lost, right? That would be foolish. Why? Well, because even one sheep has worth and value, right? Their income was tied up in this. Um, the, the scale of farmers in, 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 in Jesus' day, somebody who had about 100 sheep would be on the smaller end. And maybe if they had 1,000 sheep, they would say, ah, you know, one, no, no, no big loss. But for somebody who is a small farmer, 100 sheep, they need that one sheep, right? It's income. It's future income, right? It's valuable. It has worth. It is worth going after. It is worth searching for. It is worth expending time and energy and even risk to find that sheep. Okay, same thing with the coin. Uh, now, of course, when we think of coins, you know, I picture, okay, somebody has 10 cents, <laughs> 10 little pennies. They lose one penny. How much effort are you going to, you know, put into finding that one penny? Well, probably not much, right? But these were not pennies. These were drachma coins, and a drachma was worth about a day's wages. Okay, so put it in this terms. You know, you got 10,000 baht. You, you drop one, and it, it you know, slides off and disappears. Do you just keep going, or do you search for the 1,000 baht? Okay, anybody here not search for it? Because if you say that, you owe me lunch. Okay, that's just all there is to it. You should buy me lunch if you can chuck a 1,000 baht. Just throw it this way, right? No, I think all of us would look for the 1,000 baht. And economically, it was probably more like 3,000 baht or 4,000 baht. It was a day's wages, right? It was no small change. The point is, it has worth and it's valuable. So it is worth your time and energy and effort to go find it. Um, just just a, a point of clarification. A lot of people have the idea that Jesus is saying here, you know, it's okay to put the 99 sheep at risk to go save one. That's not what he's saying. Because the way it would have worked in that day, the shepherds shepherded their sheep kind of in community, right? So he would have left the sheep with the other shepherds uh, who were his buddies and gone off alone by himself to find the one sheep, right? Because it was worth it, right? He's not saying it's worth the, you know, the one's worth it and the 99 aren't. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they're all worth it. And it's not okay to lose even one. Uh, have any of you ever lost a kid? Okay. Uh, the honest ones will say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing most of us have. I've lost a couple. Thankfully, I found them, right? Well, I'll never forget one of the, one of, uh, one of those horrifying moments of my life was when our girls were little and we were visiting some cousins in another town, not our home, and they'd been out playing and it got nighttime. It was dark. Uh, it was kind of midwinter, so it got dark early. And uh, we can't find our kids. And we're out kind of wandering around the neighborhood calling out for them. And just then this car speeds by, and my sister-in-law sees three little girl heads in the back window of this car. And, you know, just instantly, all these images come into your mind. And our kids have been kidnapped. 
right? And we were just panic-stricken, panicked, right? And talk about praying, and all of a sudden, you know, we, we did not say, oh, you know, I've still, I got four daughters, I'll lose two, eh, it's okay, right? No, right? We, we were frantic, and thankfully we searched, and they had all gone to an, uh, some random lady's house and were having tea, um, and they were okay, right? But uh, when something is precious to you, when something has worth and value to you, you will do anything. You will go to great lengths to find it. That's the point. Right? That's the point. Um, and, and, and here's the thing. We, we are sinners, and as sinners, we, we are lost. And oftentimes what we think, when we think of that term lost, we think of it in terms of ourself. We think of it kind of selfishly as in, I'm lost, meaning I don't know my way home, right? But when, when Jesus uses that term here, he's talking about we're lost as in we are lost to God, right? Like I felt when I felt that my daughters were lost to me, I lost something, right? When we wandered off in sin, when Adam and Eve chose the path of sin and walked away from God, all humanity was lost to God, we are lost to him. And it's not okay, right? To God, it is not okay that he has lost his relationship with us. And of course, God knows where we are. But our hearts have been stolen away from him. Right? Sin and the enemy have snatched us away so that we are no longer in relationship with him. We are no longer near him. We are lost to him. And so for God, it was not okay to just walk away. Right? It was not okay we were of worth and value to him, and so he set out to search for us. Right? And it was no small thing. Uh, for the shepherd who lost the 99, the task of searching meant hard work. Um, they, they would, especially in certain seasons of the year, they would have to take the sheep very far out into the wilderness to find good pasturing, to find grass. And uh, it would mean camping out and... Uh, the, the hills are quite vast with huge, deep valleys. And I've, I've been in the region around Bethlehem, huge valleys and not real high mountains, but big enough. It's rugged country. And then at the end of the day, they would bring back all of their sheep and they would corral them together and, and keep them in a safe place where this, all the shepherds would have a, a shared responsibility guarding the sheep. And you would count your sheep. Right? So you count them, 8, 97, 98, 99. I'm missing one, Right. And the sun's going down, it's getting dark, and you've just covered miles and miles that day. And you know that somewhere out there wandering these hills is this lost sheep. It's getting dark, and so you're frantic, and you, you rush out to the hills looking for that sheep. Right? Uh, realizing that if it stays out there all night, there's going to be wolves and, and uh, you know, predators that are going to attack and eat the sheep. Right? Um, not only have I lost my own children, I've had the privilege of losing other people's children. <laughs> um, so I can identify a lot with God in this story. Uh, many, many years ago, I was the director of an outdoor ed program at a camp. And we would have these groups of sixth graders come up, uh, 80 to 100 kids at a time. And one day we took the kids out, two busloads of, of sixth graders, and we hiked all the way up real high to like tree line where there's these really cool old trees, bristlecone pines that are... 2,000 years old, and it's fun to take the kids up there and show them these trees. But it's 10,000-plus feet above sea level. It's super cold. It was May, so there was still really deep snow up on, up on the mountains. 
and had a good day with the kids, with the trees, and hiked, you know, three, four miles back down to the bus, exhausted, get to the bus, and like the shepherd, we count the kids, right? Count the kids, we are short one. Count the kids again, still short one. Count them the third time, yep, still short one. So we start checking with all the counselors, you know, where's your kids, who's missing? We find out this one boy was missing. All right, talk again about panic. It's the sun's going down. This kid could be anywhere in this vast forest of thousands of acres. And we know he's not on the trail because we had, you know, we have teams that would come down at the end scouring, making sure we didn't lose kids, right? So somehow he's wandered off the trail. He's wandering who knows where. Um, same thing. We, uh, we ran back up the trail. We called the police. We called his parents. We run back up the trail exhausted because we know two things. One, if it gets dark, we will never find him in the dark. Two, it's going to be really cold up there that night. If he spends the night in the dark, he'll freeze to death, right? It is life or death. Get all the way back up, all the way up to tree line, four miles up the trail. And there he is up there because he decided he knew a shortcut, right? And got about 50 yards off the trail and the shortcut ended and then he got lost, right? And we found him. Um, it takes effort and energy and work, right? Same thing with the lady searching the, for the coin. She doesn't make a casual glance. She gets out the broom and the, and the lantern. She expends resources. She doesn't say, well, it's going to cost too much spending, you know, three baht of lamp oil. No, she pays the price. She lights the lamp. She scours the house, right? Um, Jesus has come, and his mission is a search and rescue mission. Right Later in Luke 19, Jesus will say, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came from heaven to earth to search out lost humanity. And, of course, we know the whole rest of the story that it wasn't only that he came and he taught and he went to every village everywhere inviting people into the kingdom. We know that this rescue effort required a greater price. Ultimately, Jesus would have to go to the cross to accomplish his rescue effort on our behalf. And God the Father was willing to pay that price to search out and to save us. He was willing to let Jesus suffer and die on the cross uh, to bring us home. To bring us home. Um, Well, was it worth it? Was it worth it to go to all that trouble Was it worth it for the father to sacrifice his son to seek and to save what was lost? Well, notice what what Jesus says. And these are not the parables, but it's really Jesus' commentary on the parable. So after each parable, he gives a short summary stating the meaning and basically commentary of, of what he's just taught. And he says this, And when he has found it, that is when he's found the sheep, first story, and he lays it on his shoulders, he is rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found what was lost. I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need, or we could say who think they do not need. Repentance. And after the parable of the coins, Jesus says this, And when she has found it, that is the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, 
For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Um, is it worth it when you find what you have lost? When I found my lost girls, when we found that lost camper, yes, it was it was worth it, right? Um, I cannot tell you the joy and relief when we were able to tell the parents of this kid who frantically drove all the way to the mountains to you know, be there uh, to reunite them, you know, with great tears of joy, right? Um, and I love this picture of God the Father, right? He has lost us. And he, through Christ, has gone on this incredible rescue mission to seek and to save us. And Jesus says, what joy in heaven when just one sinner repents and comes home. And I just love that picture of uh, the shepherd putting the sheep on his shoulders. Right? He's found it. And he puts it on his shoulders and he takes it home. He takes it home rejoicing with great joy and delight that the thing that he loved and lost, he's found and has brought it home. Uh, all of heaven, it's, I love this, it's the coin. All of heaven rejoices with the Father. The joy is so great. There really is something joy, contagious about that kind of joy, about celebrating. At the, at the risk of bringing up painful memories for, from, for some of you, um, this last week uh, was the Super Bowl. Sorry, all you Seattle fans. <laughs> um, and, and all of you who are not football fans, I'll, I'll give you the brief sh- plot of the story, right? Uh, it, was, it was a really good game. came down to the very end of the game. The last few seconds, uh, the, the Patriots were up by four points, right? which means Seattle just needed one touchdown and they could win. And Seattle got the ball all the way down to within a few yards of the, of the end zone. And they had four downs, four chances to get the ball across the, the end zone and score. And if they would score, they would win and be Super Bowl champions. And they had time left. They, they were in the right position. It was as easy as just taking the ball across. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> taking the ball across the end zone. Right? But the first play of that series, what did they do? He passes it to one of the Patriots. Game over. Game over. New England wins the Super Bowl. And just like that, there's nothing they can do, right? Now, if you're a Seahawks fan, you're still crying. (laughs) You're still in grieving. But for the Patriots, what did they do? Well, there was joy because it seemed to them like it was over. It looked like they had lost. It looked like they had lost in the last second. It gets handed to them. And they are celebrating with huge joy. Now, did that celebration, was that just the team and the coaches that celebrated? No. Everybody who's a fan wants to join in the celebration and experience the joy of that victory. With God, and there's something about victory that loves to be shared. And I love in the parable, it says that when he gets back, he invites his friends and neighbors because he wants to share the joy. Right? The one with the lady, I get the one with the sheep, you know, the shepherds, they'll kind of get that. The one with the lady and her coin is a little odd, though. I mean, can you imagine somebody saying, hey, I'm having a party because I lost a thousand baht and I found it and I want you to come. <laughs> a little scary, actually. Right? But there's something about the, the thrill of joy that it's, it's designed to be shared, right? Part of what joy is is sharing it together. Um, 
We may like to do sorrow alone, but I don't know anybody who loves to celebrate by themselves, right? We love to share that joy, to invite others to participate in what we feel. Well, God wants to celebrate his joy of what he has lost and found with all those who will celebrate. And so you see this picture in heaven. It says the very angels are rejoicing, are celebrating over one soul that comes back, who repents. So if we were to kind of summarize summarize all this, put it together, and think of it in terms of our identity, what does all this have to do with our identity, with who we are in Christ? Let Let me just wrap up with saying two things about what our identity is. And two things about what difference that should make in the way we live our life. First of all, um, we are uh, at the core of our identity. We really are sinners in desperate need of rescuing. And uh, Jesus has been making this point over and over again, and he makes it throughout the whole Gospels. And it really is at the heart and core of what what the Gospels are about. And it really should be what we shape and form as the core of our identity. Now, this is not exactly fun because, you know, everything about society, right, everything the Pharisees were trying to do is in the opposite direction of this. It's putting on an image of ourselves that's good, that's presentable, that's socially acceptable. But the identity we have before God and what, what Jesus is teaching here is, no, you are, at the core of who you are, lost. Lost, right? Sinfully lost. We have been rebels who have walked away from God, who have wandered off and have got ourselves in serious, serious trouble. And we need to be found. We need to be rescued. Um, And the truth is that there is only sinners. There are people who can pretend otherwise, but all the world is simply full of sinful, fallen people. And we are those people. Uh, as much as we oftentimes want to pretend that we are Pharisees, that we are the good people because our sins are more socially acceptable or we've hid them well, the truth is, as God looks at us and sees us, he does not see righteous people. Now, when he looks at us through Christ, we do have the righteousness of Christ, but it's not our righteousness. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. At the core of who we are, at the the, the foundation of our history, our story begins, every one of us, as fallen, sinful people whose hearts have pulled away and gone away from God. Now, we may have hit it very well. We may have lived much of our life as a good person. Maybe we grew up in a Christian home, or uh, maybe we even got into ministry, got into Bible school. Maybe we knew how to fool people into thinking we were good. But the truth of it is very different, right? At the core of our story, we are all sinful, lost people, and we need to be rescued, right? We we could not get ourselves out of our trouble. We could not find our way back. We had to be rescued. The only hope for for us was that God would come and he would search out and find us and that he would put us on his shoulders and carry us back home, right? That is at the core of who we are. We are lost and we are weak. We are unable to fix ourselves. Um, So being the bad person must be a core part of our 
our identity. But it's not just that, right? Because uh, we'll all say, well, yeah, you know, but we've been saved. We've got the cross. We've got forgiveness. And that's true. But that forgiveness does not all of a sudden make us good people. I mean, God is shaping us into people who are like us. Um, but our identity can't be as righteous people. Jesus will not give us that, right? When we get to heaven, we can own that. For now, what we must see ourselves as is lost people. But lost people who have done something. Uh, God has reached out. He has found us. He has made possible for us a rescue. Right? But notice what he says. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who does what? Repents. Repents. Than over 99 righteous persons who do not need repentance because they think they're above it. Just so, second, after the second parable of the coin, just so I tell you, again, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Repents, right? So here's our identity. We are, we are repentant sinners. Okay, we're not just sinners because, uh, well, maybe you are. <laughs> That's really not the identity God wants us to have, right? He wants to have an identity. Yeah, we are sinful people, but we are sinful people who have repented of sin, the Greek word for that literally means to change our mind, right? It means we used to have a mind that was set against God, that was stubborn and rebellious, that loved sin. But we realized that we were lost. We realized that we were hopeless. And we have changed our attitude and our mind, and we have turned to God and sought his rescue and salvation. We have allowed him to pick us up and put us on his shoulders, right? He has rescued us, but we must repent, Right. Uh, but I like that picture because repentance is admitting that we are a sinner, but that we don't like it and we want our lives to take a different direction. It's a lot like the, the AA model, the Alcoholics Anonymous model. Some of you may have gone through that. Right. Uh, and you don't need to be ashamed of that. Right. Right. Why? Because we're all sinners. Right? The Alcoholics model says this. Once you are an alcoholic, you are always an alcoholic. If you have been sober for 50 years, you are still an alcoholic. And that is your identity. And you are not allowed to ever wipe that off of who you are as a person. You always introduce yourself. I am Tim Dunham. I am an alcoholic. But you can say that you are an alcoholic in recovery. That you are dealing with your problem and for many years you have been sober. But you know that there is inherently within you a weakness that if you are not careful, you will fall back into that addiction. That's why you are forever must see that as part of your identity. Great picture for us as Christians, right? We are sinners who are repentant. It's, it's an inherent weakness in us that at any time, it's possible for us to go off the deep end. Right? Does anybody not believe that? <laughs> Watch out, right? If you think sin is beyond you, beware, because it is not. And uh, the Bible says, take heed lest you fall. It's within reach of any of us to, at a moment, go off the deep end into sin. Sometimes big sins, more often little sins. Somebody says something to us, and instantly we want to respond by just taking their head off, right? Or by saying the most crushing words we can to them, right? And and sometimes we, we actually say those words, right? Uh, we that quickly can sin. But we're repentant. 
right? We recognize that that is not what we want to be. We come to God and we acknowledge our sin before him when we seek his rescue and deliverance. Okay, so those are the two realities about us. One, we're sinners, we're lost, but, but our full identity in Christ is that we're repentant sinners. And he is saving and restoring us. He has brought us, he's putting us on his shoulders, he's bringing us home. We now can draw near to Christ and listen to his teaching, like the sinners who sought Jesus. So we draw to him and we hear him and we long to be near him, to be in fellowship and relationship with him. Uh, If that is our identity, which I really believe it needs to be, there should be two uh, effects on how we live life, how we see ourselves and how we deal with the world around us and with God. The first one is, and and really the core of it, is that this is what makes us humble people. The Pharisees were incredibly not humble. They were arrogant and, and proud. Uh, and they looked down on sinful people and tax collectors and began to look down on Jesus. Can you imagine this? They're looking down on the Son of God, perfect in holiness, the absolute perfection and revelation of all that God is, and they feel that they can judge him because they are superior to him. Right? What incredible pride and arrogance because they felt that they were good people. Right? That's why it's vital for us to not embrace this image and identity as good people, right? Because we need to be deeply humble people, right? Who in no way ever feel superior to anybody, right? Where we see ourselves on equal plane with the worst of the worst. Um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, you know, how do you feel about certain kinds of people, right? Uh, do you distance yourselves from certain classes of people? Or do you gladly welcome them as Jesus did? Okay, it says that Jesus was welcoming. Not only welcoming, he was actually sitting down and eating with them, right? So it wasn't just that they came to his teachings and he didn't, like, kick them out. But he was actually inviting them to lunch. And he was sitting down and he was having fellowship and hanging out with these horrible people. He welcomed them. Do we welcome sinners? Uh, how do you feel um, about gays and homosexuals? Right? Do you just kind of inherently distance yourself from them because they're in a lesser class? Right? What about child molesters or people trafficking girls into prostitution? Right? Do you put them in some kind of vile, horrible class that you're not part of? Well, you are part of, right? You are a sinner. Your, your sin just happens to be a different category, but it's no less wicked before God, right? You are no better than them. And we should have the humility that we welcome, right? Um, we welcome them. We love them. We, uh, as we'll see in a moment, we are seeking the lost, Right? They are precious to God. They are lost to him. And we should be making every effort to reach out to them with the gospel of Christ. Right? Uh, how do you feel about guitars and ladyboys? Um, or maybe for you, how do you feel about Pharisees? Right? About people who seem to be too good and too proud. Right? Um, I have a friend who, you know, is, he, he loves... He can hang out with the gay people and the sinners all day long. He hates Christians. I mean, he is a Christian, but uh, that's his struggle, right? 
when our identity is deeply rooted in as a repentant sinner, it should produce in us this incredible humility that we, like Jesus, can joyfully reach out to lost people and seek them and work to bring them back into right relationship with the Father. Of course, we don't accept their sin. Jesus did not condone their sin. He'd never said it's okay for you to be sinful against God. Right? He called them to repentance. But he did it because he loved and welcomed them, because he offered them a message that they had worth and value to God in spite of their sin. And there was hope for cleansing and forgiveness through his blood. So that's our first, the first thing is it should produce in us this humility that gives us a passion for lost people because we know that they are our people and we are in that box and we welcome them as we would want to be welcomed ourselves, right? We love broken, lost, hurting people. Secondly, uh, that's kind of how it affects and impacts our, at one level anyway, there's probably many others, but our relationship with man. But what about our relationship with God? Well, let me just read again. I know I've read it four times now, but uh, hang with me. Notice how, uh, you know, the nature, the tone and character of our relationship with God. And when, when he has found the, sh- the lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Right? Uh, with the coin, he said, When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin I had lost. Right? There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Um, when we have this as our identity, what it should do for us is it should make us incredibly joyful people who understand the joy of the Father and who long to share with his joy in reaching the lost. And, and the cool thing about that is, is we are one of those lost, right? If nothing else, we should find some joy in our own salvation, right? Uh, I hope you have joy in your salvation, If you don't, you're missing something really critical in Scripture. God did not save you to torture you. It's supposed to be happy. It is your victory over sin and death. You were lost. And the the reality is once we realize and we own and we remember and we hold on to that part of us, that we were lost people, then it makes our salvation that much more joyful. And the more aware and the deeper we have conviction about the sin in our life and the unworthiness of who we are, uh, the more joy there is in realizing the riches of God's grace that has brought us home to him. So there should be incredible joy, uh, not just in us, but joy with the Father. It was not a burden to him to save you. It was a joy. Uh, it explains Hebrews 12, too, right? Uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross, right? Uh, if you don't understand the joy of the Father in saving what he lost, that verse makes no sense, right? But Jesus had joy going to the suffering of the cross because he knew it was going to be bringing the lost home to his Father, And there was joy in that. There's joy in that, right? Do we share in the Father's joy 
at the party he is throwing in our honor. And not only on our honor, but every brother and sister in Christ, every soul who comes to Jesus and who has a story of redemption. Uh, And I love, he says that he calls them together. He doesn't go one by one. He wants it to be a party. The shepherd calls together, calls together his friends to party. We're going to see it in the story of the prodigal son, even more richly portrayed. We are gathered today, we're gathered together right now at God's invitation, right? To do what? Well, in a sense, to party, to joy, to rejoice, to celebrate the salvation of God on earth. Let's pray, and as we uh, do, let's prepare to rejoice, to celebrate God's salvation. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.